Hello everyone and welcome back to series 10 of the Great Women Artists podcast. I am so excited to say that this series is supported by the Levitt Collection, a vast and varied art collection of which a major portion is dedicated to fantastic works by women artists. The Levitt Collection's support for women in the arts is such that preparations are in full swing for the creation of the new museum, FAM, F-A-M-M, which will be opening in June 2024 in Mougins in the south of France. It will be the first major museum in mainland Europe dedicated to solely female artists and will exhibit a myriad of artworks all from the collection. Impressionist, surrealist, modern and contemporary art created by women from around the world will take pride of place in the Levitt's new museum, Female Artists of the Mujan Museum. But in the meantime, stay tuned by following at fam.mujan and don't miss the beautiful book Abstract Expressionists, The Women, published by Morel, which presents a selection of works from the collection alongside richly illustrated essays by scholars Ellen G. Landau and Joan M. Marta, all available now. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from the Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most of them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I am so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is the renowned curator, scholar and expert in 15th and 16th century Italian drawings, Furio Rinaldi. Currently holding the post of Curator of Drawings and Prints at the Fine Arts Museum of San Francisco, the largest collection of works on paper in the Western United States, where he has just staged the most extraordinary exhibition on Botticelli, Furio is acclaimed for his work on Leonardo da Vinci, Raphael and Michelangelo. A writer, he has published extensively in the Burlington Magazine, the Metropolitan Museum of Art Journal and more, but perhaps he is best known for his curatorial ventures. Having organised the fantastic Legion of Honour exhibition, Colour into Line, Pastels from the Renaissance to the Present, and next year will curate a groundbreaking exhibition on the Polish-born painter Tamara di Lempica, who is very excitingly the artist we will be discussing today. Dubbed the Baroness with the brush, Lempika at the height of the 1920s found herself at the centre of Parisian life and constructed some of the most radical, liberal and avant-garde images of the time. From reworking traditional subjects to melding the meticulous techniques of the Renaissance painting with cold and shiny art deco aesthetics, she evoked the fast industrialising world around her. Furio Rinaldi, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm okay. Thank you, Cathy. Thanks for having me. And uh, thanks for remembering the Color Into Line exhibition, which is where we first met, in fact. We had such a lovely time looking at that beautiful uh, pastel show with so many women artists, in fact, featured that time. So, Furio, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's an honour to have you here. I came to visit you at the Legion of Honour last month to look at a drawing by Lempika. And I have to say, I have never had a conversation on art where I literally could have been there all day speaking about that one work. 
I've been fascinated by Lempika for years and I'm not alone. She has this mass appeal because she works in painterly traditions, but turns them on their head, whether it be fusing elements of the Baroque with high drama and sudden light effects, with a hard-edged industrialism as seen in her robust figures with their angular cheekbones. So I'd love to start by asking you, as you are an expert in 15th and 16th century Italian drawings, with that in mind, what drew you to Tamara di Lempica's work? That's a great question. And in fact, what was recognized as highly original and distinctive of Lempica style from the 20s is this unique combination of classical purity, a taste for linearity and uh, an accuracy, you know, of the anatomy with the cult for modernity. And Lempica combines these two elements, uh, not only in her art, uh, but in her life. She saw herself, I think, as a descendant of this grand pictorial tradition. She traveled to Italy many times, and at the same time, she lived an incredibly liberal lifestyle. She really embodied a new kind of woman in terms of her choices, in terms of being in charge of her own life and her own destiny financially through fashion. And I met her, so to speak, in Italy. I was a kid in 1994. In Rome, there was a big exhibition on Tamara dell'Empica, and it was a sensation. So these are the early 90s, where it's really the height of this rediscovery of Art Deco and modernism, both in furniture and decoration and fashion and art. And I remember my mom, she loves art, but I would say she's more into the avant-garde and something more abstract. She was captivated by the life of this woman and her art, and so was I. I have vivid memories of that. And I think where we connected also as Italians, it was St. Lempica's appreciations of the great Renaissance tradition. As you said, the Baroque, the, you have the dramatic lights of Caravaggio, and you have the control of line of the high Renaissance artist. So Italy is really the link Yes, I love the connection between your childhood in Italy and where you are now curating exhibitions in the US. So tell me, is there a particular work that you are drawn to? Well, there's this very famous painting, uh, which is called Woman in Green. Uh, it's at the Pompidou, and uh, it's, it shows this blonde woman, uh, which, in fact, it's almost like a self-portrait. In Lempica, you always have this kind of self-identification with her subjects, and she sees herself in the world, and the world is a reflection of herself in a way, which I find it very empowering. And she has this fantastic emerald green dress that is drawn almost like a sculpture. You know, all the folds uh, are very prominent and very distinct. Uh, It is a dress that certainly reflects a direct knowledge of the fashion at the time with the draped uh, style of Madame Grey, all the great, you know, women fashion designer of the time that Lempica used to wear. So it captures a sense of hope for the future, self-assurance, have an awareness. And again, you know, I'm talking to you and you have discussed this with your work thoroughly. But the fact that it was a woman artist for me was a novelty as a young kid. And, you know, I never saw a woman, you know, so prominently displayed and celebrated uh, for her work. Totally. I mean, this work, Woman in Green, is just extraordinary. It's almost like that kind of wet look fabric that you sort of get with a lot of Venus sculptures as well. So there's that kind of classical element to it. Her beautiful golden curls, this white hat, her gloves, this dress, which is almost like a a bow that you'd find on a present or something. 
Again, she's fashionable, she's stylish, but she's also in control of her image as well. And she's statuesque. Just that kind of physical strength just embodies that confidence in Limpika's brush. Absolutely. I'm working, you know, uh, tirelessly on the Limpika, which is opening in a year. And in the research for the catalog and this meeting with you, I found something that it's a little bit of a surprise for you and a little bit of an homage. Amazing. As, you know, your audience know, this year we lost uh, Francois Gillot was incredibly important, not only as an artist, but again, for what she represented and uh, as an art critic in a way. Um, We see Picasso in a different way, also thanked to her. And I was so impressed uh, that you made the New York Times correct the title of the obituary. So going through the archive and looking for material for Lempica, I found out that quite remarkably, François Gillot was asked to write a piece on Lempica when she died for the French edition of Vogue in August 1980, which I would like to read, you know, a little excerpt of it. It is fantastic. And it proves uh, as a, something that I always think that artists speak to artists in a way, and they understand something that we art historians sometimes don't see, or they expand, you know, aspects that um do not necessarily fall into our domain. So I first met Tamara de Lempica at the home of a painter friend, Raymond Abner, during the winter of 1966-67. They both knew each other from having exhibited together at the Yolas Gallery in New York. Within the nuance decor that surrounded Abner's home, the presence of this tall, slender woman stood out from the moment she arrived with the insolence of a percussion of a symbol. Her theatrical posture, the suppleness of the waves of her rose gold hair, the authority in her voice, her beauty was striking. Having met her often then, my memories overlap, but her image appears to me in a succession of impeccably cut and tailored black suits. She favored dark furs and extravagant, expertly battered velvet hats, which she placed overhanging and which shaded the right side of her face. Her left hand especially traveled in space, seemingly without being weighted down by her giant ring, whose size fascinated me. She often telephoned me, alternatively using her artist name, Tamara de Lempica, or her title, Baroness Kufner, which confused me somehow as to her identity. Sometimes she arrived at my house unexpectedly and reappeared in the same way, chased away by some internal hurricane. She wanted at all costs for me to see her paintings and to visit her studio, decorated by her sister, Adrienne Gorska, in her house. Something in me defended itself, refusing to surge of this invading friendship. So much dynamism paralyzed me. The more Tamara insisted, the less I could bring myself to follow her home. Having not seen any of her paintings until then, I feared that she was a woman painter and not a painter woman. This is a translation from French. And in France, I think it's very interesting that she makes this difference between femme peintre and peintre femme. And then she continues um, with really interesting takes on her style, which she described as smooth, polished, frozen. But also she says, despite the satin and porcelain aspects of her work, despite the glazed aspect, 
a passion smolders, revealed by the magnitude of her volumes, by the violence of her reds, the blues, the greens, which bursts into a range otherwise well-tempered. Nothing sweet here. Moderation combines with excess. Dreaminess with rationality. Trouble impulses with purity in a successful synthesis of classicism and modernism. Isn't that great? <laughs> That's extraordinary, but also just the, the last few sentences you said about that contradiction. It is totally those sort of dichotomies and contradictions that you get in Lempika's work that is so exciting because it is sort of two things at once or it's multiple things at once altogether. Yes, tracing her career back a little bit. She has an academic training in St. Petersburg, although we don't know much about her early beginnings. Uh, she constantly lied about her age, uh, but we know that she was possibly born in Poland. She identified as Polish uh, throughout her life, but certainly her first trainings are in St. Petersburg at the academy there. Then she fled during the Bolshevik Revolution and she arrives in Paris in 1918. And uh, there she finds she is in need of work. She married this kind of aristocratic husband, but they had no social connections in Paris. But she could draw, she could paint, you know, she was an artist. And so she found herself following the classes, the art classes of André Lotte in Paris, who is an artist who like Lempica, comes from the Cubist tradition. So it's a new figurative language that combines the tradition with the modernity. It's important to say that also Lempica belongs to possibly only the second generation of women artists that were able to enter the academies in Paris, where they could study the female nude and the male nude, which is something that, as you know, was uh, prohibited to women and women art students until the turn of the century. So when was she actually born? Because I know that this is a bit of a contentious issue. She stated that she was born in 1902, but that's impossible because her younger sister, Adrian Gorska, was born in 1899. <laughs> uh, and, and by the way, Adrian Gorska is the first Polish artist who was a graduate in architecture. She's considered one of the great modernist furniture designer and interior designer of her generation. She was the architect of the first cinemas in France, the large one, the Pâté. And she was a pupil of Malay Stevens, uh, so an incredibly talented sisters, uh, both of them. And what was that upbringing like? What sort of family was she born into and what would she have been exposed to in her childhood? She was born from a upper class Polish family. Her mother, Malvina Deckler, was a socialite in Warsaw and she was coming from a very good family. We don't know nothing about her father. She concealed any information about her father throughout her life. But the most important element to kind of reconstruct her biography was a book written by her daughter, nicknamed Kizette, who wrote this book after her mother died. And of course, there's always something that comes from within the family. It's riddled with, you know, you need to always distinguish what's really the historical evidence from the recollection of your mother, from your own interpretation of what she said. But uh, uh, what is a recurring aspect of this family? It's a world of women where the men disappear we don't know nothing about Malvina's first husband. We don't know nothing about Malvina's second husband, 
allegedly Limpica's father. We don't know nothing about Limpica's brother. We don't know nothing about his male cousin, who has a very important role in bringing her to Paris. So the only thing that really survives visually and historically is the women, which I find incredibly fascinating, starting with Limpica's own name. We know that she was born as Tamara Gurvik Gorska, but again, the documentary evidence that will be revealed uh, um, later in the exhibition uh, suggests that her name was a different one. She signs her paintings. Uh, Kati, this is very interesting. All of her salon submissions uh, from 1922 to 25, they're signed with her male patronymic, Lempitsky. Not Limpitska. And in fact, all the critics in Paris at the beginning, they think she she's a man. So it's so interesting because every time her husband was referenced in all the research that I was doing, it was the I rather than the A, and I never understood. And that's so fascinating. Do you think that she didn't want to correct them because there was that sort of internal misogyny within the critics? I think so. She married Tadeusz Limpitsky, but, you know, using the Polish-Russian custom, uh, she would be Limpitska, as she will use eventually. So some of the first critics and reviews of her work say, oh, we really loved the work of Monsieur Limpitsky. And, you know, nobody really knew she was a woman. And her true identity was revealed only in 1925 when she did her first solo exhibition in Milan. And there she exhibited with her full name, Tamara Delempica. Delempitska and then French Delempica. Totally. I mean, this is so interesting. But also, if there's one person who embodies the spirit of the roaring 20s, you know, the Chrysler building going up, the rush of industrialization, the jazz age, the kind of effect of globalization and Paris and, and the kind of new women post-war as well. And I'd, and I'd love to start off with her nudes. And these are really quite groundbreaking works because in a way, they really evoke traditional Venus poses, but here we see someone who is sort of subverting them. And there is these sort of erotic elements, there's queer elements in it. I mean, tell us, how did she make the nude her own? Yes. So we set the premise, which is the nude classes, you know, in Paris at the Académie Ranson, Académie de la Grande Chaumière, Montparnasse, all these fantastic free or sometimes not free classes where students could go and study the nude, which again, it was not a novelty, but for Lempica, it was only the first slash second generation that could do that. And I think that the role that Lempica has within the grand scheme of art history is exactly for her contribution to the female nude. She is the first woman artist who approached the classical genre of this big ensemble of female nudes engaged between one another. I'm thinking about paintings like uh, Perspective, uh, Le Rhythm, uh, and of course the single nudes like La Bella Raffaella, where the sexual charge of this image is really incredible. The nudes are almost bursting out of the canvas. The model is often as a direct relationship with Tamara, 
It's Rafaela, who was a long-standing girlfriend of Lempika. Lempika was openly bisexual and this very liberal lifestyle, which, you know, should be always contextualized in the time and place of Paris in between the world wars, which was a more liberal environment that allowed much more open self-expression in terms of sex and choices. If we think of a painting like La Bella Raffaella, which I consider possibly one of her masterpieces. This is extraordinary. I mean, Furio, could you describe this to us? I mean, this is also, it's so Baroque, this work, and it's so sensual and erotic and gorgeous. Uh, absolutely. So we have a, a nude figure um, kind of lingering. Uh, Limpica's eye is almost caressing what I can see, this beautiful nude, uh, and lingering over the cedar, you know, shapely curves. Uh, it is a pose that is directly sourced from Michelangelo, the sculptures in the Medici chapels, but totally reinterpreted, seen from a different point of view. And then going back to these beautiful nudes, you can see that her back is uh, very provocatively arched, you know, backwards. Uh, and the point of view is really a very personal one, someone who's really there. I believe, you know, it, this a painting like this almost follows a tryst, you know, or a moment of really uh, of great intimacy between the two. And everything else is these beautiful shades of grays that one associates with modernity. Our deco furniture of the skyscrapers, uh, the Chrysler building, you know, it's all shades of beautiful, you know, shimmering grays. This is really a painting as others that firmly establishes Lempica in the mid-20s as the woman painter of women, because she is, in fact, the first one after the um, great examples of Renoir, of Cézanne, to revive this genre of big ensembles of female nudes, uh, which is one of the great themes of Western art history. Totally. It's so interesting as well. You mentioned how this was such a period of especially sexual liberation in France. I mean, you sort of compare it to what was happening in England. And it was a time when the likes of the Well of Loneliness was being banned. And Virginia Woolf's Orlando caused a huge riot amongst Parliament. And then in France, it was this age of liberation, which was so fascinating, is that I don't think women in France even got the vote till 1942. So the way that it was kind of going back and forth in terms of the liberation of women, and, and she is capturing almost that flash of that moment, which actually feels so like our society as well. But, you know, Cathy, the world of culture, the world of the arts, it's always, you know, on the forefront of that change. But uh, Lempica's world, uh, we think of Marie Lorenzen. Clearly, Lempica understood that presenting these nudes was also a key to speak to that society who was in charge of culture at the time. So uh, very interesting. And I believe that the war put a stop to all that evolution and kind of presence of the queer community in the cultural life. Uh, it's certainly a step back uh, in the 40s. Uh, but all the wars uh, put a stop to women uh, being more in charge, uh, to more radical social movements evolving and developing. If we think of French Revolution, it's the same. You know, if in a pre-French Revolution period, uh, Women were the great patrons of the art. We have fantastic women artists in the 18th century France. I mean, we mentioned Vigée Lebrun, but there are many, 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 many more. And after that, we go back to a kind of a male-dominated art world, in fact. And it will be the same after the Second World War. 
Totally. I mean, you know, the Barnes have done this fantastic exhibition on Marie Laurence at the moment. And that also highlights the fact that her name was almost obliterated after the war as well, which is fascinating. I'd love to also look, I mean, I'm zooming you, to, uh, you're in San Francisco right now, and I can see this gorgeous poster of a painting. She painted her daughter, Kizette, so many times on the balcony at her first Holy Communion as a sleeping girl in pink as well. And I'd love to just talk a bit about how she did portray her daughter. And I mean, I think of someone like Vijay Lebrun, again, who painted her daughter. I think of someone like Bert Morisot, who painted her daughter. But it was still rare for a woman artist to paint her daughter so much. And I wonder if you could give us an insight into how she portrayed her. So you are absolutely correct in uh, kind of framing the artistic relationship between Lempica and Kizat uh, within the longer tradition of women artists uh, portraying their kids. As we know, many women were not allowed a broader you know, range of subjects in their artistic outputs. So they start with what really familiar with them, what's within their sphere of competence, which is the family. And I think because of the familiarity with the subject, that allowed herself to be even more experimental and provocative with the portrayal of her daughter. Kizet was born in 1916. They are very close in age, the mother and the daughter, and they have a very complicated relationship. When Tamara moved to the United States in 1939 and Kizet follows her a year later, quite interestingly, Tamara introduces uh, Kizet as her younger sister because she didn't want to reveal you know, um, that that was her daughter. I think the portrait that you mentioned, Young Girl in Rose, it's a beautiful portrait of Kizet in a tennis attire, as you can see, very fashionable and like exquisite. She's seated, but she's almost compressed by the pitcher plane, which is a compositional device that she certainly derived from the Italian mannerists. If we think of Pontormo, if we think of Bronzino, if you think also Botticelli if, you know, to a, some sort of way, so the figure adjusts to the framing, to the format of the picture, and not the other way around. But I love how also there is a tension between mother and daughter here, and they're very different from the news as well, her images of her child, because when we see Kazette in pink, you know, she's also reading. She's It's almost just saying, you know, don't interrupt me, mother. And we see a mother sort of trying to sort of get some kind of relationship out of her daughter in a way. Well, remember what François Gillot said? Sometimes Lempica arrived at my house unexpectedly and reappeared in the same way, chased away by some internal hurricane. So it's a re really strong woman that, you know, when she arrives, she arrives, she's there. So one can only imagine how she almost forced her daughter to pose for her for these paintings. And uh, I think these paintings are were very, very important for Tamara because she wanted to express herself through her talent and her craft, and she needed something to prove it. So it's not a coincidence that we have Kizette, we have also the beautiful, beautiful portrait of Tadeusz Lempicki, her uh, husband, the man with the black trench coat, which is uh, now in the Museum of the 30s at boulogne billancourt uh, Fabulous. And in the exhibition, we will have it next to the preparatory drawing for it. Uh, extraordinary. You know, we uh, mentioned and you spoke about how Lempica's uh, 
paintings encapsulates the fashion of the time, the women's yeah. fashion. But in fact, you know, the men's fashion is also pretty striking and as present, I would say. And in this case, we have the beautiful, you know, beautifully tailored and cut black trench coat, the scarf, uh, his hair, you know, the kind of, you know, glossy, um, super smooth. But there's also very, very telling detail of this painting that very few people uh, notice. The man's left hand is unfinished. Oh, yes. Right. And that is the hand where the wedding ring was. And it is unfinished because they divorced the same year as this painting was being completed. So Tamara left it purposely unfinished because she didn't want to really add this very telling detail. Which, you know, again, how personal life, artistic life, you know, and paintings combine and live together in Lempica is pretty fascinating. And I don't know, Kathy, when I put together the exhibition, at first I really wanted to detach and separate Lempica's life from the work. But at the same time, then the more I delve into her biography and the mystery of it, I thought this can be really additive uh, and uh, without being overshadowing and overpowering uh, on the art that I want to put on the forefront, uh, it's going to be a very clean uh, museum retrospective, but her life is something that cannot be taken away from her art making. And the portrait of Tadeus is one of those examples. But also, I think, in a way, her life is intrinsic to her painting. Because, I mean, when we think about 1927 and 1929, you know, she's getting her first commissions for Die Dame, which is this German magazine, which catered for career-orientated women. And we see these women who are the new women, literally. And one of the greatest examples, obviously, is the auto-portrait Tamara in a green Bugatti with her at the helm of the steering wheel. But then we also have, and her first commission in 1927. I mean, she's also painting the modern woman. And in a way, she is living as the modern woman. So that's intrinsic. Yes, absolutely. So her collaboration with Didame is very important. Like Vogue, Didame was one of the most important women's magazine of the time. Keep in mind that between the wars, the production and sales of women's magazines and fashion magazine really skyrocketed for the very first time building up on the new increased buying power of middle-class women. They were entering the workforce. They were much more interested in societal you know, aspects and not just fashion, but all sorts of things. And Limpica, who was very much in tune with her times, it's not a coincidence, again, that she works for these magazines. And she produces about five or six covers for Didame. The most famous one is the, can we say iconic? It is the definition of iconic, absolutely. Yes, iconic self-portrait on the green Bugatti. Again, this is a painting that transcends Limpica, encapsulates the time. We have a woman looking at you directly, driving this non-existent, in fact, you know, model of emerald green Bugatti. So she invents the world that she wants to live in. You have the beautiful, you know, fashion, you know, helmet, the scarf, uh, the clothes, you know, tight crop of the painting is just exquisite. uh, And she is uh, on to take over the world. But I also love what you said about invent the world that you want to live in as well. Because that visual culture is so 
dominating on our on our world and actually you have to paint it or you have to create it in order to live it sometimes she did and she did not only with her paintings and through her paintings she did it with her apartment we mentioned in François Gillot memory before that she was repeatedly invited in her apartment at Rumeshang which is uh, in fact it was a reflection of Lempica's world it was designed by the preeminent modernist architect in Paris at the time Malle Stevens. It was decorated by her sister, Adrian Gorska. We have plenty of photos of that apartment, which is incredible. It's like chrome pleated. Everything is like angular and edgy and mirrors everywhere, color lilies uh, and everything like a very sparse environment. And not only we have visual records through the photographs, but the Video company Pate in 19, I believe, 32, recorded Tamara Delempica for a minute and a half video that it's available and will be uh, shown in the exhibition of her working in the studio. So this was an apartment slash studio. And this kind of piece is super fascinating because it's called uh, A Beautiful Modern Atelier. And uh, it starts by showing this uh, man artist, you know, with beard and like, you know, the big hat and the palette in very gloomy, antiquated studios and said, oh, like when we think of an artist studio, this is what we think. And we have the, you know, old uh, male artist with a naked model in a very dark place uh, falling apart like a mess. But actually, this is what modern woman uh, who's an artist is working. And it shows Tamara in this fantastic, clean, sharp, uh, beautifully, you know, rendered uh, studio apartment, uh, which is impeccable. Everything is white and gray. And she's uh, portraying Suzy Solidar, who at the time it was one of the most beautiful showgirls uh, of the 1920s and 30s. And with very assertive gestures, she's kind of drawing this portrait of Suzy in this neatly designed and sharp apartment. And after the studio time, you know, she just, you know, now she's tired and there's a barman within the apartment that pours her a martini and she's ready for dinner. She goes seamlessly from studio time to cocktail hours. Uh, which is something that Tamara also reported in her interviews. Like she's dedicated to her art making three hours a day and then she takes a massage and then it's champagne and caviar and then, you know, something else. <laughs> yes, isn't it? She, she works straight. She only breaks for champagne and baths. Yes. Exactly. And, you know, as you said, it's the envisioning and designing your own world. That's exactly what she did. Her physical world, pictorial world and lifestyle. She was really at the center of her own universe. I think what's so important in her work is also envisioning this new idea of art history. So I love the way that she recreates images of Venus, Adam and Eve, maternity through the Madonna and child almost. I mean, how does she kind of play on these traditional subjects? And I mean, especially something like Adam and Eve. And again, drawing on that tradition of this story that has been told time and time and time and time again, especially by male artists. Yes, absolutely. You mentioned a painting that it's uh, very, very important because, uh, first of all, it's the only, only painting of nudes of Lempica featuring a heterosexual couple. Number one. Number two, it has a special place in pop culture because it was formerly in the collection of Barbara Streisand. It was one of the first big collectors of Lempica, as is Madonna, Jack Nicholson. She's really beloved by actor 
artists in general, which I find it a really fascinating combination, and she certainly would have loved that. And when uh, Streisand uh, sold her collection, her Art Deco collection, in the mid-90s, that painting made for the first time a million dollars. Limpica reached the you know threshold, very you know symbolic threshold of million dollar, which she bought. She said she bought it for thirty thousand dollars or so. So it really showed that commercial appreciation that was increasing quickly. And this is the same time that the exhibition that I saw with my mother in Italy, you know, is the really the height of the rediscovery of Art Deco at the time. So Barbara Streisand was very savvy to sell her things, you know, at the time of the peak of interest. And so that painting I'm. Adam and Eve became a symbolic painting of Limpica's resurgence in the market. And how do you think she has pictured Adam and Eve, though? Because I think what I find so fascinating is when we, we think about Michelangelo or Cranach or something, that Eva's always the temptress. I mean, interestingly, she's still on Adam's left here. But in a way, he is sort of conspiring with her. They're both seducing each other, and that's okay. Yes, absolutely. I think there's an element of intimacy between the couple, but also what I find that particularly evident is that for the first time, it's the male that is sexualized. We see him from behind. He's beautifully, you know, carved. Gorgeous. And, yes, gorgeous <laughs> back and buttocks, which is really on the forefront of the painting. So it's really taking the center stage, but in a sexual way. While it's the woman, it's Eve that we see in the face. We see her beauty. She's holding the apple. So again, it's a way for Lempica to really flip the roles in a very intelligent way. And we know how that painting was done thanks to recollection from Tamara de Lempica. She was uh, portraying the female model. And at some point during a pause from the session, the woman started eating an apple. And she said, oh my God, you are Eve. So we need to find you an Adam. So Lempica go down the stairs, uh, exits her apartment, goes on the street, and she finds a policeman whom she thinks that he is gorgeous and perfect. Uh, He offers him some money and said, come upstairs uh, and, you know, can you model for my painting? And he did. He took off his clothes. (laughs) And that was really how that painting was done. But again, with Tamara, we never know what's real and what's not. She had always a taste for dramatization and making everything particularly sensational. But sometimes... uh, we don't want the truth. We want, you know, something that is convincing and, and funny enough. <laughs> I think so. We want to live in a Tamara de Lempica world. But I mean, this is the 1930s and there's the threat of the Second World War. And Tamara leaves Paris and she goes to America, to Hollywood of all places. So it's so fascinating that she should have this sort of magnetism with the stars of Hollywood who adore her work. And she also paints that world in a way. Yes. From 1939, Limpica moves to the United States. She first establishes herself with her second husband, the Baron Raoul Kufner, in Beverly Hills. They chose to live in King Vidor, their movie director, mansion in Beverly Hills. Then they buy a fantastic duplex apartment in Manhattan on 57th Street. And then uh, she ends up in Houston, uh, living with her daughter, Kizet. 
that from the 60s. So throughout the early 40s, Tamara tries a comeback as an artist. She changes her name for a fourth time, and this, in fact, will be our last section of the exhibition, which we call Baroness Kufner. Having married Baron Kufner, you know, she becomes the Baroness. The Baroness with the brush. Which my co-curator and colleague, Joya Mari, interprets as uh, like they were mocking her by calling her Baroness with the brush. I don't know. I think she may have been pleased by this nickname. I think she'd like it. (laughs) Uh, But certainly the exhibitions that she is doing uh, while in America and the style that she uh, develops uh, in the United States is not only aligned with the main trends of American art at the time, and she's not really appreciated. She is seen as some sort of a relic from an art deco past from the roaring 20s and 30s, not au courant with new trends. So it's a moment of crisis for Lempica. She first tries focusing on very realistic and pauperistic, I would say, subjects. Then she turns to surrealism. Then she turns to abstract painting. She kind of lost the connection that made her really unique, which is the connection between her and the reality that she was living in a way. And I think, you know, we can discuss about I don't know. I feel like women artists are forced to reinvent themselves constantly, something that male artists are not necessarily, you know, they're not under the same pressure. Why was she forced to adapt to the constant, you know, changes and ever-evolving market? Well, many artists and male artists were rewarded for the recognizability of their work without being the subject of the same, you know, pressure from the market. But uh, nevertheless, you know, we witnessed some sort of crisis and decline. And uh, Tamara died very much in solitude uh, in 1980 in Mexico, in Cuernavaca, where she bought a beautiful, you know, lavish villa. And uh, she was living between Cuernavaca and uh, Houston with her daughter. In, in a way, they're lonely days and lonely last years, but something incredibly important happened. In 1972, a group of dealers, Alain Blondel and uh, Yves Plantin, they were running a gallery in Paris. And again, this is at the cusp of a new appreciation for Art Deco. And by flipping magazines of the time, they found out about Lempica and her art. So they reached out to her. And she was really surprised to hear that someone was still interested in her work. And they mounted this incredible exhibition, which just focused on Lempica's art from 1925 to 1935. And this exhibition was an incredible success. Uh, Lempica went to see it, went to the opening, the Vernissage, and we have photos of uh, her in her kaftan and smoking. And like, so she enjoyed this incredible moment of rediscovery and appreciation before she died. And this always makes me so happy because in a way she didn't need that confirmation. She knew that she was good in her mind. You know, she was a star. I don't think that it really mattered to her that she fell in decline or not, but certainly to experience in Paris, you know, the city that welcomed her when she was a refugee from Russia and seeing the glorious portrait that she did 40 years prior being so beloved and appreciated. That exhibition started a whole new appreciation for Lempica's work and appreciation from the market also. 
So certainly, you know, her life ends on a high note, thanks to that. Oh my God, well, she's still flying. And, and I mean, why do you think, I mean, you're doing this exhibition in 2024, the first major exhibition on the West Coast in America, where she is obviously beloved by Hollywood stars as well. It feels so fitting that she would be in America and, and her work sort of totally complies to that aesthetic. I mean, why now? You know, like you say, Madonna bases her image on Lempika, strives and clicks her. Why now? So the exhibition stems from an acquisition that I did for the museum. We acquired a beautiful drawing, portrait drawing of Kizette. And in the research process for that acquisition, I figured out that we were the first American museum to actively seek and purchase a work by Lempica, which was really surprising to me. What? So the Met don't even have anything? They do, but it's a gift from Kizette from the 90s. There are oh, wow. The only two museums in America that have works by Lempica is Metropolitan Museum and the museum in Austin, Texas, but they're both gifts. So the museums never really purchase or actively seek. It's a subtle but very, very important difference. So the research process to the acquisition led to this uh, revelation for me. And so I ran the idea of Olympic exhibition and everybody loved it. And I discovered that in my lifetime, I saw many exhibitions of Olympica in Europe. There was one amazing one at the Royal Academy in London, in Paris, in Milan, not a museum retrospective in the United States, where she moved in 1939. She became an American citizen, by the way, and she's heavily collected here ever since. And uh, I don't know, I feel also that San Francisco has such a rich and long tradition of social activism, particularly for the queer community. So to present it here for the first time was very suited and appropriate. And I must thank... uh, profoundly, Joy Amari, who is the great living scholar of Lempica. She is the co-curator of the exhibition, and it's thanks to her that also we will have many, many incredible paintings coming to, to, to the show. Well, Furio, I will next see you at the Lempica exhibition at the Legion of Honor, and I'm sure many listeners will as well. Thank you so much for this incredible, in-depth insight into Lempica. I think now couldn't be a better time. But as this is the Great Women Artists podcast, we do always ask our guests, if you could ever say anything to Lempika or ask her something, what would it be? I really would love to have a martini with her. <laughs> I was hoping I, you'd say that. I think it would be the best. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Gin martini, up with a twist. Perfect, yes. perfect. Furio, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you, Cathy. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Great Women Artists podcast with the fantastic Furio Rinaldi on the brilliant Tamara Di Lempica. I am just in awe of her life and work and as always have linked to everything in the show notes so you can find out more. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Nardis Renege and thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Hold up. 